welcome to the latest chat about geopolitics and trade episode of the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast, where our guest presenter Punit Oza from Maritime NXT delves into the influence of geopolitics on shipping and trade flows and the impact behind mainstream news stories. In this episode, you will hear about the value of diverse viewpoints in research that are not just focusing on shipping. Hear about learning from hindsight on the impact of geopolitical events on trade and applying that to current situations and changes that there might be in shipping as a result. And why a high correlation of factors may not be relevant to prediction and much more. With that, I'd like to hand over to Punit. Thank you so much, Marcus. It's a pleasure to welcome the next guest on our monthly podcast, William Edward from J. Lawrence & Bulkers. Lawrence & Bulkers is a company based in Denmark, owning handy size and now soon, I think, bigger size ships as well. William, welcome to the podcast on chat about geopolitics and trade. It's always an honor to talk to industry experts and learn from them and obviously share some ideas as well. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Pranit. Thank you. William is, uh, just to give a quick short introduction, is uh, head of research in uh, Lawrence & Bulk and interestingly has a very varied background in terms of having been equity analysts and also in various other roles where he actually gets involved. He's also, from his experience and his constant need for lifelong learning, has been constantly upgrading his knowledge. And when I talk about geopolitics and trade to a research uh, head, it's always fascinating because I believe, and this is my personal belief from the time I was in Claveness, that research actually can create a huge commercial impact on the business, which is seldom discussed and talked about in the normal discussions that people have about commercial stuff. So it's always fascinating to talk to you on the research side, William. And maybe if you want to quickly introduce yourself and give a bit more background about yourself, and then we can kickstart the whole uh, discussion. Yeah, thank you, Punit. As you just mentioned, I've been um, having a very diverse background in terms of coming in as a research in shipping. But just taking a little bit back, I've been nearly 10 years in, in investment banking as an equity analyst. And I've also worked in the chemical tankers, also as a head of research, and now a head of research in, in J. Lawrence. I think you, you actually hit it right on the spot here on the nail. When you're talking about like a diverse background and also continuously to improve yourself, as you just mentioned, I just finalized my MBA and I've been studying sustainability at, at Cambridge and so on. So get these diverse uh, inputs from all walks of life and also different industries and so on, because they at least give you some sort of information or at least first first uh, some know-how around how you actually see geopolitics and also see how, how the world's actually evolving. So you don't, uh, it's not only necessarily focused on just shipping. Absolutely. And, uh, and uh, actually, I must uh, thank um, your current CEO, Niels Josephson, who was my first boss in Claveness uh, here in, in Singapore when I joined in 2007. Um, and I still remember one thing that he mentioned, and, and he has he has personified for me a very interesting blend where he actually worked in Beijing and in Asia for many years and then was setting up the office in Singapore. And in some ways, I found him to be a better understander, a person who understood the Asian culture, but also had the outside perspective, the holistic perspective that brought in. And I remember his comment when you we were recruiting the team in Clavenas Asia, he says, we must go for a multicultural, multinational team because culture 
has a huge impact on how business gets done in this part of the world. And that has effectively, if you transpolate that into the trade space, you actually also put geopolitics in it. And geopolitics is a lot to do with history and culture. So maybe I can get your thoughts a little bit about where do you see from your experience, especially in Lauritzen and, and before, where geopolitics and trade actually merge with each other, impact each other. Maybe some dated examples. We don't need to talk about any current spaces as well, but maybe examples where you think that, you know, this particular trade flow has developed and geopolitics has a big role to play in that. Maybe some examples from your own experience would be really useful for the students. There is, of course, uh, there is a lot of uh, a lot of examples here we we can dig into uh, at least from the past. Uh, but um, but uh, I think you're you're quite right. I think also the the, the cultural aspect of, of also I think Nils is doing a, a great job here in Laos as well, doing exactly the same uh, multicultural here. And I think of course the plays a vital role in us understanding the different uh, cultures cultures of course, but also understanding what what are the the geopolitical aspect of of these cultures. But in terms of getting some some examples where we can see that some trades has, has changed over time is just to give it a, a brief one was from when Australia uh, mentioned that that uh, China was uh, behind the COVID, then they stopped all coal export, uh, coal import from Australia. What happened there? It was that uh, we saw all of a sudden that uh, all that coal coming out of Australia had to find different routes. So they went to India, it went to all different kind of other places. And, uh, and essentially, end of the day, when we're looking into our market, we're talking about uh, ton mileage. So is that in- going to increase the ton mileage or is it going to decrease the ton mileage? Because if it's going to increase the ton mileage, then it's good for, for, for the market, for the rates. If it decreases, then uh, it gives more supply into the, into the market and thereby also decreasing the rates all else equal, right? So there's just uh, one short example. We also had the uh, trade dispute between uh, China and the Trump administration back in the days. Um, that also affected a, a lot of uh, agricultural. So we saw a lot of uh, a, a large shift for soybeans going from from US uh, from the US down to East Coast of America, down to Brazil, and then towards China instead. So we could very easily start to see these geopolitical changes affecting the trade when they happen. Uh, the thing is, of course, can we anticipate them when they're coming and so on? And and to some extent, <clears throat> no, we can't. But we, of course, can, in, in hindsight, learn from them and see, okay, how can we maybe be on the front seat when things happen? How can we actually go around it? Good idea, or at least a, a good example is also maybe the Russian-Ukrainian war that escalated not slowly, but uh, over time, not from one day to another. Also, the trade dispute with Trump uh, back in the days was also something that was worked over time. So we could actually start to see, okay, if this is going to happen, what will the implications be on trade? And then, okay, who could substitute that trade and where could that potential, now in this case, uh, the US, where could that agriculture then go towards? So we can start to find new clients, new customers, or at least uh, enhance our relationships with the existing ones. Absolutely. And that's exactly what I was coming to, because in my mind, the commercial strategies need to be developed and can be developed using multiple factors. And geopolitics is usually in the subconscious discussions most of the time. But what I find is that consciously, this doesn't really come front and center. I mean, most of the time, and today I, I, I teach here on this course, and I realize that a lot of the examples I give from my Clavenus days as well, 
like the Qatari trade flows into U.S. Uh, of fertilizers, which was kind of non-existent till they actually decided to do their things on their own with Muntajat. And we did the Muntajat contract for a while in Clavenes. And that time, we didn't realize that this is actually a geopolitical development. The fact that Qataris were looking to take control of the marketing themselves and then create a trade flow which didn't really exist. And we built a commercial strategy around it because by creating that trade flow into U.S. Gulf with having ships on period, we could then go ahead and take outbound cargoes from U.S. Gulf and, and, and make some money out of it. So I think there's a lot of subconscious geopolitical discussions here. And here I must ask you as a head of research, it's a very fascinating. We usually have, so far we've done uh, three episodes and this is the fourth one. And, and, and you can see that most of the discussions are happening with the commercial people, the CEOs, but you being a head of research, I think you have a very unique perspective because I think research is uh, is a part of the business which has in one way extremely commercial or commercial implications roles which have commercial implications. But at the same time, you have the advantage of having a kind of a much broader field to play with. The commercial guys have only so much to talk about because they have ships to fix or they have ships to manage. But you guys have kind of the world in front of you to literally go around. So how do you go about doing that? And how, how do you see some unconventional ways of looking at the same data and trying to come up with some interesting ideas? It'll be fascinating to hear that. Just a good example of that is... Um... First of all, yes, sitting in research and uh, my team in research, we, of course, has, has a much larger playing field than the commercial guys in that sense. But it also makes it a, a lot more complex and also a lot more comprehensive. And that is actually where we also try to utilize this multicultural uh, company so we can actually start to utilize because as a European or a Danish guy can't read Chinese. So I rely on my Chinese colleagues. Uh, to read the Chinese news, what is actually going on in China uh, on the ground floor, etc. And that goes for all the cultural things. Uh, also, uh, we have uh, people here from Brazil that we can take a speed, they speak Portuguese. They can read the news, what are actually going on here um, and, and giving me some input in, in that sense. Um, but but also in terms of uh, just another good example of uh, how we can uh, maneuver around uh, these geopolitical uh, things. You remember back in the days when we saw COVID uh, like evolving in, in China, we're starting to see lockdowns and so on. In order to see uh, the effect of that, we monitored uh, the seismic activity in the underground in China so we could actually see in the industrial production live so we could see if the, the trucks were moving. And so when, when they started to open up again, we could start to see all of a sudden there came vibrations in the ground again and then thereby also started we knew that within a short time span, we'll probably start to see cargoes in ports. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And I think that's the kind of great example that... I would say that as a shipping company and as a research guy in a shipping company, you're looking at seismic data is, is, is more or less an impossibility, at least in the previous years that I remember. And that's the power of data, I guess, which is, which is useful. But because it's an information overflow, like you mentioned, there's so much complications around you. And then it is very difficult to kind of get the right analytics done. So kudos to you guys to do what you're doing. But just a quick one, if you can think about and, and just give me your view on how do you see research as being more a proactive role, which means that you're talking about predictive aspects about things rather than just reactive part of it. Because most of the time, we used to have these research presentations from brokers saying, last month has been a fantastic month and it looks like an all-time high. But that's a past thing. It's gone. And then when you ask them, what about the next month? They say, yeah, but all things 
said it's going to be an average month and it's like what does that mean and, and, and this is where i i feel that you know how do you create commercially decision making ability to be research centric in some ways uh, it could be interesting uh, to hear from you especially from geopolitical perspective yeah, yeah but but in, in that sense of course uh, of course we, you can always learn from history and learn by wrongdoings and learn by different uh, kind of aspects going back but of course the whole essence here is to, of course to have the predictable predictable power and that is uh, what we we're trying to achieve here we are we are forecasting on the market uh, every single week and we are of course doing that because if you're looking at figures from let's just give an example china us whatever industrial production numbers then they're usually a couple of months old when you're getting the numbers so you cannot use those in a predictive power because we are way ahead of that and remember industrial production we are the first line and when we're in dry box shipping so we are actually even before we actually start to see the, the industrial production so so we need to have high frequency data that is very reliant and then also very frequent as, as high frequency, uh, but also very predictive in that sense. So that could be uh, Alibaba uh, search engines, Google search yep. engines, uh, Amazon and so on. So we can actually see how much are being searched in terms of uh, different commodities uh, or not commodities, but uh, groceries or washing machines, TVs, whatever. So we can actually start to have a proactivity. Okay, now it starts to pick up in terms of uh, spending. That's just one example. But there's a lot where we need to find these uh, high-frequency data and also have some sort of uh, predictability in them and not just looking at 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 old numbers in that sense. But of course, these numbers, we have these, uh, the, or these high-frequency data. We, of course, match them in this production numbers or PMI numbers and so on to say, okay, are they actually relevant? Are they having a high correlation? What I always try to say is, yeah, you can easily have a high correlation. I would say that the 95 or 99% of all car crashes uh, out on the freeway here in Copenhagen, they've brushed their teeth in the morning. Is it then dangerous to brush your teeth before sitting in your car? No, because there is no link there. But it's still, yeah. there's still high correlation, but there's no link. So you need to find where it's okay if it has a high pre- uh, correlation, but is it also relevant to the actual uh, prediction? Valid point. And and I think that that just brings this point to my mind that, you know, with Lawrence and Bulk, you guys have a, a more complicated uh, issue because unlike some of the other companies which are in the bigger sizes, which can only do fewer trades, a handy size uh, literally goes around the world and can do nearly all the trades in the world. Um, so degree of complexity goes up by 10 times, maybe 100 times in some cases, because you have certain trade flows which are completely because of interest rates that you can have a trade flow change or you can even have a, a, a country which actually reduces its uh, production considerably but still uh, does handy size shipments instead of Panamax shipments or Supermax shipments. So how do you kind of look at that space of it because of the complications? Do you actually feel that it's more like dividing it into into bigger chunks and then trying to analyze it rather than to micromanage the whole thing? I would like to say that we micromanage everything um, okay. <laughs> and we definitely try to. But of course, there is uh, some main elements that is driving the market in that sense. But of course, we also, as you just mentioned, it could uh, just an interest rate uh, flip, the, flip the coin where we actually see the market uh, evolving and that, that could very well just also, also just be price. 
uh, on the same uh, on the same commodity, there are two different parts of the world that can completely flip the flip the change. Yeah. So yeah, it, it is of course a big big spider web uh, working in the handy size uh, compared to let's say uh, Panamaxes or Capes. Um, but it also what's where you can actually find the margins if you're having a good research team and and you're having a very good commercial team, then uh, you can also find these small pockets where you can actually make a big margin. Perfect, absolutely. And that brings me to the the next thing in my mind, which is about managing these risks. So one of the things that you already mentioned about is data and technology. Um, but what would in your not just Lauritsen specific, but but in general your thinking as as because you actually been around in, in the industry as well. Where do you see this kind of challenge of geopolitics going? Do you actually see that managing these geopolitical risks is purely going to be a technology-based discussion? Or you think that there is an ability to kind of hedge your bets in a different way, taking long-term bets and trying to hedge it in some way that maybe this country and that country have two different profiles in, in terms of how they have had historical relations. Um, do you actually see those strategies coming into the commercial space? Of course, it's all subject to economics and numbers, but do you see that there are better ways to manage? I'll give you an example. We had Precious Shipping as our first uh, guest on the podcast, and they actually recruited, or rather recruited, invited um, the, the head of Google Thailand to come on board of Precious Shipping in Thailand because they genuinely believe that they want an outsider voice on technology and updates on technology to come and talk to their board and their people um, so that their eyes can open up a little bit about what solutions exist and how it does. Because there's such a big universe of potential solutions which is there. How can somebody guide them through the labyrinth of the various options available? So what kind of thoughts do you have on this in terms of solutions? How do you see solutions developing for this particular aspect? But but of, of course, uh, technology is a big part of uh, our industry uh, and the availability of data has never been bigger than it is now. And especially also with the AI coming into play, um, we, we, of course, also try to utilize uh, both machine learning and uh, AI in terms of uh, our predictability and also in our research. But So technology is a big part of it. But I think end of the day, all the geopolitical uncertainties that we see is is to a large extent uh, political driven in that sense. Uh, so the, it's the individual political entities that actually foster these and they can change it on an election overnight what are the main focus and what are the main concerns so I don't think you can necessarily like hedge yourself in that sense but what you need to do is be ready to adapt to change I think that is uh, like maybe the key be very adaptable instead of sitting on your hands and does having the global presence help? I'm sure it does because uh, you have the ability to kind of get viewpoints from multiple people on the ground, which makes a huge difference uh, when you come to evaluate these risks, right? Point, yes, good point. But uh, but being a global player also eliminates risk because if you're just uh, present in one trade between two countries, is there, if there's going to be a dispute between those two countries, then you're out of business. Being a global company and having a vast net of trade routes and, and commodities we trade, of course, eliminate the risk of us being caught on the wrong side of that equation. Absolutely. And I, I must tell you a funny story. I, I think it was, uh, it was uh, just when Myanmar was opening up, when Aung San Suu Kyi had, uh, had been sworn in as the prime minister. And Nils, we had an intern from SMU and... The project we gave him was to uh, was to analyze Myanmar, and I was in charge of that space, and I got some information. 
And Niels gave me a couple of books saying that this is where the future looks like. And, you know, in Southeast Asia, Myanmar looks like it's coming up a lot. So I actually did go down there, meet the players and understood a little bit about the local economics. And then suddenly there was a coup and everything changed. So whatever effort we had put was like vanished more or less. So they do have such changes. I mean, whether it's good or bad is another story. That's a political discussion. But business actually changed dramatically out and into Myanmar because of that particular development as well. So you can never be ready. But of course, as you say, you have to be adaptable and ready to change. But let me come down to one of the key topics other than the industry professionals who tune into the podcast. We have a lot of students who tune into the podcast. This uh, course is, a, is, is kind of a focused on the student that I, I teach at various universities. And I find that the younger generation, and you've been a recent student as well, so you probably have that. I was also at the CBS lecturing on geopolitics uh, earlier this year, and I found that it's interesting that the students today have access to more data than ever before. Not always the right one, but more interestingly, they are expected to be having opinions and contributing to decision-making much earlier in their careers than when we started our careers. So I would say for my first five, 10 years, I never used to really have any say in terms of, should we take that call? Should we not take that call? And like my boss used to say, I've done all the information, understanding, analytics. This is what you need to do. Please execute and just come back to me and tell me that execution is done. That is not happening now. I've got students who Google when I'm teaching and, and ask me questions about it then and there. What kind of tips do you have for the students, especially when they're becoming decision makers very early? And more importantly, what kind of qualities and soft skills do you look for when you see these kids and what they will need to succeed in future? It's just a personal question in your opinion, yeah? Yeah, to answer the first one, yes, the playing field has changed. Being a student 15 years ago and being a student today, the playing field is completely different. As you just said, the decision-making process here, back in the days, it was based on experience because you didn't have the availability of data. So you needed to build up an experience before you can actually be a decision-maker. Now you can almost instantly get that information and that experience by utilizing AI, the data, whatever you are now using, and thereby also be very fast in terms of being a decision-maker in the company and thereby also very fast starting to evolve your experience. Um, in terms of uh, to the other part of your question, in terms of uh, soft skills and so on, I think it's very important to be empathic and be open to to change and be open to different cultures, because uh, all different cultures, all walks of life, have something to offer and also uh, some some inputs in that sense. And now I'm talking not just from my work, my professional uh, work uh, work. Uh, it's also from a personal personal uh, perspective here. Um, it's that if you are empathic and open minded. And uh, and hungry, really, really are pushing. Then uh, then you can get a long way. Absolutely, I think that's a very valid point. That I think the curiosity and hunger um, are two things which are um, which are missing. But there again, I, I ask you one thing, which is interesting. I mean, you have a background. You were in the industry indirectly, and then you are kind of in the industry fully directly now. With somebody like Nils has kind of sailed on on ships, and I've got family in shipping, and I'm in the shipping space. 
shipping doesn't really get, at least in the mainstream media, a very positive um, uh, vibe. You know, things go wrong and everybody is jumping up and down saying shipping industry has a problem, including the Joe Biden's famous statement saying you need to reduce your freights uh, because the shipping cost is too high. Um, so it's portrayed as a villain. So when you look at the younger student, the people who are looking to come into the industry, um, they they need to kind of get the the impact of of the positive impact that the industry is making. There's so much talk about decarbonization, emission reduction, but if you look at the share of industry as a percentage of the overall emission uh, space, it's a it's a much smaller percentage compared to the kind of trade that goes on on the ships as as terms of global trade. So. Anything in your personal capacity and also Lauritsen's ideas in terms of how do we create the positive impact or positive image of shipping, portraying that out there uh, can be a huge impact. And maybe you want to share something through this podcast about that as well. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right. Uh, there is to some extent, uh, I think it's, but it's just not going for, for, for the shipping industry or in in general, it's also it's going for all industries because the new the news and the media they are they're hungry to get the bad case because that's it's clickbait. Um, so so I think yes, if you can decipher the the, the media landscape uh, or the news landscape, and then okay, saying okay, what are actually making an impact in the world? Uh, I think shipping is a, a very large contributor of that. Uh, we are by far the biggest trade partners. We are connecting the world or globally. But not just a dry bulk ground sitting, but a container, gas, oil, whatever. Uh, we are we are essentially connecting the world. Yes, there is of course some pollution, and and of course we need to take that serious. We are in a new like uh, era where we need to focus on the environment. Um, but I think where you can actually make an impact is in the shipping industry. If you're coming from my old background as an investment banker, it's uh, you're just pushing around paper. Uh, now here you're actually having a, a true, uh, like almost meaningful uh, impact because you're actually moving a cargo from A to B. Um, you're actually connecting the world. You are doing good things as well. And I think that I think that is maybe neglected uh, in a sense or uh, to some extent in, in the industry. But we are actually connecting the world and, and trying to make a, a world a better place. Absolutely. So, so if I can, if I can just, you know, we have a nearly end of, of time here, but before I leave you, I just wanted to quiz you on what do you think is going to be the one biggest geopolitical development you feel in the next few years? The wars are, of course, very much a part of this uh, narrative, but outside the wars, you know, there are things developing like the Arctic route that Russia is looking to open up. Uh, there is talk about the fact that there is uh, going to be more decarbonization and the fossil fuels may lose their steam eventually, and that has a geopolitical implication. Technology is changing massively, and meat substitutes may reduce the grain trade because animal feed demand might go down. Where do you see in the next 10, 15 years will be one of the kind of game changers, if I can ask you? Um, I think you just uh, hit the nail, and I, especially some of them. The trade routes change, of course, and the northern route, of course, plays pay, a big part in that because it's reducing the ton mileage. But uh, I also think technology is going to be a massive driver, and, and of course, in that sense or in that connection with technology, also the development of sustainable, sustainable uh, fuels or sustainable uh, way of uh, doing shipping. But I think uh, demographics over time also changes. Uh, so, and I think demographics are, are also a very important uh, driver in that sense of uh, of where we're going to see trade going forward, and also economically. So, 
it's of course affecting you. You can see India is now the, the biggest country in the world. Five years ago, that was China, um, and and going forward, uh, that could be a that could be a whole continent like Africa. Absolutely, and and not only just the fact that it's the biggest country, the mix of people is very different than the homogeneity that China finds itself in. This is a very heterogeneous space, so there are going to be tremendous pockets of opportunities. I mean, I again go back to old times when uh, Nils and one of the other port captains, Captain Chakravarti, used to talk about taking the first ship into Navlaki as an anchorage uh, in 2001 and 2002. I mean, this was a time when the anchorage was was, a, was an alien space in, in India. And today, the number of ports in India are, are springing up left, right and center. So the development space is, is pockets of opportunities exist. But fascinating to talk to you. It's really nice to have a research guy give his points of view on this aspect because, you know, I can relate to a lot of the commercial parts, but you guys are doing a fantastic job in Lauritsen and it's great that you guys have actually got this idea of, of uh, multicultural input sources, which I think is going to be very crucial for you guys to sustain the growth going forward. So I wish you all the best and I thank you very much for your time, William. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you, Punet and William, for that insightful conversation. And thank you for listening. We look forward to joining you on the next episode of the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast.